0: in a Bible study that I've entitled, Understanding Some of the ABCs of the Faith. Now the word controversy means a heated or a prolonged disagreement. And that pretty much sums up chapter six of Hebrews. It has been and continues to be a source of great controversy, this section of the Bible. And what I've learned is that Key ingredients can be missed when people choose to argue instead of receive. And disagreements get elevated. When, As disagreements get elevated, then understanding starts to lower and starts to go downward. And no doubt on the list of the top five difficult passages in the Bible, this one has to be on that list. Now today, we aren't actually gonna deal with the controversy. We're gonna take the first few verses and build on as we'll get there next week and next time. But for now, I think it's important for us to be reminded what a shame it is to be trapped into arguing over the Bible instead of worshiping the author and being enamored by the majesty of God. And you know, if we understood everything there was to understand about God, then we would be God but one of the first things you learn in life is you are not God. Anybody amen that? I'm grateful that I'm not God for a variety of reasons, but I know who I am and I know who God is and how he reveals himself in the scriptures and standing firm in the faith for sure, but never veering away from worship and adoration. Now remember, this section of Hebrews is... The context is spiritual maturity. That's what we learned last time. Come back to chapter five with me and pick up in verse 12. Chapter five, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, notice the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. The spiritual maturity of the Hebrew Christians is not as advanced as it should be. They aren't as far as they should be, and as a result, they wanna go backwards. They wanna go back to Judaism. You see, when you were saved, when I was born again, that began the spiritual growth process. We all need to grow up. We all need to make progress. Spiritual maturity is expected. Just as in the physical realm, when a baby is born, a baby naturally grows up into maturity, so it's true in the spiritual realm. When you and I were born again, no matter what age we are, spiritually, we became an infant. And there is that expectation for spiritual infants to grow up. And you don't wanna come to a place in your life where you're being told, by now you should be teaching these things to other people, but instead you're wanting to go backwards. And it is possible for us not only to stop moving forward, but to start going backward. And that's exactly where the Christian believers are. These Christian Hebrews are in this section of Hebrews. They're being rebuked, as it says in chapter 5, verse 12, for needing milk and not solid food. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. It's time to move forward. It's time to move forward. He says, therefore, which remember is always a connecting word. And therefore, we always have to ask the question, what is it therefore?" And we come back to chapter 5, and he says in verse 14, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those by, by, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, it's time to leave this discussion of the basic things and move on if God Permits. Notice in verse 1 the word perfection. You might want to circle that word. It's the same theme. It literally means mature. It means completion. The one who reaches a goal. And so the instruction here is to get their eyes back on the finish line and the race that they're running going forward. So let's leave the basic things and let's move forward to the deeper things, to those things that remember of Jesus' ministry in heaven as our eternal, compassionate high priest. And I believe that's a word from the Lord for some of you. You need to get your eyes back on the finish line and remember that you're in a race and that this race is run to be won and to be finished. And perhaps you have fallen to the wayside over time And it's not just merely you neglecting the basics, it's you neglecting everything related to Jesus Christ. And our eyes would be back to perfection or completion. Paul wants us to learn these six foundational truths. They're not exclusive, there are many foundational truths, but there are six mentioned here. Because if we're gonna make progress and leave childish things behind, and we need to learn our ABCs. And why do we learn ABCs? But to learn how to communicate. You learn the alphabet to put words together, words to put sentences together, so that we can learn to grow in our relationship with one another. That's one of the first things that a missionary will do when even as they're preparing to go to another country in order to take the gospel to them, they'll start preparing by learning the language of that country. And isn't it important for us to understand the language of God? To put the ABCs together so that we might put words together and sentences together and grow in our relationship with God. It's His work in us, the hope of glory, His string. And even as we're learning these things, we can't forget that it's the work of God in us. It's His work. It's God that enables us by His grace to make progress. You may hear these practical Bible studies and think, well, I better get busy and and I better start working harder and I better start doing more, when all the while God is simply asking you to surrender to Him, to learn the abiding relationship that's yours in Christ Jesus, that the responsibility is not to weigh you down, but rather to lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us so we can run our race with joy, the joy everlasting And so it's God that works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So let's look now at six of these foundational things that are laid out for us as elementary principles that we all should know. Number one is here in the foundation it says in verse one, the foundation of repentance from dead works. Every believer should understand repentance. It is the very gateway to salvation. Recognizing your sin against a holy and a righteous God and choosing to repent. Now the Greek word there for repent is metanoia and it literally means a changing of the mind. That's what repentance means. I've changed my mind about the subject. Or better put, repentance speaks of going in one direction and then turning around and going the exact opposite that's repentance. It's, it's a pivot where you say, you know, I used to live my life this way, now through repentance, I'm going to live my life for the glory of God. And he says, repentance from dead works. Well, what are dead works? Well, dead works refers to any work that you or I do that we believe will save us or keep us saved. Don't forget, these Hebrew believers are wanting to go back to Judaism back to the formalism of works. They want to go back to a place where sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies will be a big part of their life that they would then depend upon in being right with God. And yet every ritual, every ceremony, everything listed in the Old Testament pointed to who? Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. Which this whole sense of going backwards doesn't make sense. It doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't make biblical sense. Because even if they were to go back to Judaism, what would Judaism teach them? To look for the coming Messiah, to which they would learn Messiah has come, that they would embrace him as he's fulfilled the law. And so they are caught up in their spiritual maturity of looking backwards, which really isn't going backwards at all. You see, repentance is that turning away from sin and turning toward God, going in the opposite direction. It is a key ingredient in preaching the gospel. You'll recall in Matthew chapter three, verse one, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And do you know when Jesus Christ came and began his earthly ministry, you know what his ministry was? Listen, Matthew chapter four, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You fast forward into Revelation. And he's speaking to the church in Ephesus that had left their first love. And what was Jesus preaching to the church in Ephesus? Remember from where you have fallen, repent and repeat the first works. Repentance is key in our lives. We need to continue to see those areas in our lives that we must turn away from and turn back to the things of God. Not trusting in dead works. Works that will not save that cannot save, that will not save. There's that need for us to know today that you cannot earn or work for your salvation. It is yours and mine by faith. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches in Isaiah, trot it down, Isaiah 64, verse six. This is what the Bible has to say about our good deeds, our good works, it says. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses, All our good works, everything that we do that's right, are like filthy rags, and we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. It's not our good works, but rather the good work and finished work of Jesus Christ. That's a foundational truth, to learn what repentance is and to stay away from dead works. Now, the second thing that we learn as a foundation in our faith is in verse 1 at the end, faith toward God. Repentance is met with faith. Faith toward God. You see, the value of what we believe in is only as significant as the object of our faith. And so he's very clear. Your faith is toward God, your creator. It's not faith in a doctrine, not faith in a church, not faith in a movement, but faith toward God, Our lives were forever changed and are forever changed by faith. And lest anyone try to fool you, everybody believes in something. Everybody has a belief system. Everybody has a filter by which they react and deal with things in this world. You might even refer to that today as a worldview. Every single person has a worldview. And there's really only two worldviews. One that is God-centered and one that is man-centered. That's it. There's no third option. And so, a foundational truth for you and I to know is our faith is toward God. The word faith simply means trust or to have a firm conviction, a belief in the truth. And the key to life is faith. Learning how to trust God and obey. And we've learned one of the two most important things for you and I to grasp in life is to learn to surrender and obey. That's our response. Our response to God's word is to trust him and obey him. That's our response. That we would follow through with what we learn. Faith, trust, believing is so key. We're to get past these things and grow up in our faith. God, the Bible says that God has given to everyone a measure of faith, and we're to build that faith like a muscle, acting on it regularly. I mean, if you examine your life, perhaps you're a worrier today. That undermines faith. Perhaps you're fretting today. That undermines your faith. Maybe you've been overcome with anger today. It undermines your faith, because your faith and what you believe dictates how you behave so faith needs to be toward a holy and a righteous god we're to look to god for his approval we are to trust god to believe him for our life to hold fast to him in our difficulties you see once we placed our faith in jesus to save us we're to grow into deeper areas of faith trusting god at every new turn which makes our lives very glorious and fruitful that's a foundational principle that they're stuck on and it's time to move forward. Trust God and take a step of faith. Thirdly, notice in verse two, the third foundational thing is the doctrine of baptisms. Mark that S. If you didn't notice it before, there's an S at the end, baptisms in the plural. Now, some of you, when you think of baptism, you think of one thing, water baptism. But there are actually three significant baptisms in the Bible, The first one is baptism into the family of God. Now, before we get to that for a moment, let's define the word baptism. The word baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, and it literally means to be submerged or to go completely under. The greatest picture from the ancient Greece, from the ancient Greek language, is actually this picture of taking a garment, let's say a white garment, and having a bucket of dye And you would baptize that garment. So the idea is that that white garment would go under the purple dye and come back up a completely different color than it went in because it was completely submerged. And so the first baptism that's mentioned in the scriptures is actually not water baptism, but being baptized into the family of God. Jot it down in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 13, I'll read it to you. It says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. This happens when you're born again. You are immediately brought into the family of God, you are immediately submerged into a brand new family so that not only do you have a physical bloodline family, but you also have a spiritual line family, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. You know, just a few hours ago, just a few hours ago, this room was completely empty and dark. There was nobody in it, and yet, as time came, in 8.45, you know, 8.30, we're here, people started streaming in. Now we're in this service, people are streaming in. People started listening on the radio, watching online. You all came into this room, but this room doesn't make you a believer. Just being in this room within these walls or downstairs in the cafe area or in the overflow, that, that doesn't make you a Christian. You are, when you were born again, spiritual life was put into you and you were baptized or submerged into the family of God. And that's an important truth to understand. You became, he uses the word, completely submerged. You became an immediate part of the family of God. And you know what I've found over the years? I have found... That as close as some of my bloodline family is, I find that there's a close kinship among the spiritual family of God. It doesn't matter where I travel. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what language we speak. There is a spiritual language that connects us in Jesus Christ. And I know from some of your testimonies that your relationship with believers is actually deeper and closer than your bloodline relationships. Because that's the God, that's the way God He brought you in. That's one of the baptisms you need to recognize. Secondly, there is water baptism. We're all familiar with that. water baptism. Water baptism is our obedient act of identifying with the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as I've shared before, water baptism is a gospel presentation to the eye. Whereas most of the time we share the gospel verbally because faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God, water baptism is actually a picture of the gospel visually, because it is the act of a person, of a believer, a Christian, that has already been baptized in the family of God, spiritually, it is an outward act of obedience for a Christian to identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ. And here's a summary. The water represents death so that when you come in, maybe we have them set up here, and you come into the troughs, the water holding tanks here, and you're walking into the water of death, or we're out at the reservoir, or back in California, we used to baptize at the beach. You walk into the waters of death, identifying with the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Then, we pray over you, and you hold your nose, and we take you all the way under the water. Now most of you, we bring right back up. Some, you gotta stay down for a while, washing away but we bring you right back up and as you go down under the waters of death you're being buried the old man's being buried with christ and then when you come back up that represents the resurrection of jesus christ and the newness of your life and you're doing that an open identification with everyone that's watching and water baptism is important it's not something that's done passively And it's not something that's done religiously. It is an outward act of obedience for a true believer in Jesus Christ. That's why infant baptism, not only is it not taught in the scriptures, it doesn't really represent the biblical teaching of water baptism. And so every true believer, even if you were baptized as an infant, need to walk in obedience and be baptized as a believer, not passively, but actively. The scripture for this is Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, preach the gospel, people get saved, and then those people are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And so we're baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. Placed into the family, and then we're water baptized, declaring our faith in Jesus. And the third baptism I see mentioned in the scripture is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit came upon believers, empowering them and making them witnesses for Jesus Christ. And this is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that this, this too is something that brings some semantics and some disagreement. Some say it's just the filling of the Spirit. Others, like me, I like to say what Jesus said, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. But whatever it is that you see in this, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit and receive all that God has for you and receive his promise and walk forth in his boldness. This is basic stuff. That Paul says, you Hebrew believers, and you believers in Colorado, and anyone that's listening, these are things you should know. And this, by the way, is why we have our 101 classes here and our 201 classes. I know sometimes they get referred to as New Believer classes, and so because of that, you kind of look at your life and go, well, you know, I'm not a New Believer. But they're not exclusively New Believer classes. They are classes designed to lay before you the very foundations of the Christian faith so that you can build your life on the truths of the Scriptures, and they're very valuable. So next time you hear the 101 or 201 classes offered, make a point to invest six or eight weeks of your life in learning the foundations And they'll expand on even deeper into these issues and much more, these foundational doctrines. So number one is we need to know about repentance and from dead works. Number two, we need to learn what it means to have faith toward God. Number three, we need to understand these baptisms. And I see at least three of them as we saw. And now number four, he says the next one here in verse two of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands. Now, I have to say, this is an interesting foundational truth that he mentions. Because when you read through the book of Acts, we're familiar with this idea of laying on of hands. It's mentioned many times and done many times. For example, there's the laying on of hands on someone to pray for them. We do that here. There'll be times when I just feel a sense where somebody needs to to acknowledge something before the Lord, and they need to remember they're in the body of Christ, so we'll have them stand up, and then we'll say, hey, look who's standing, and then go over and lay your hands on them. And it's a pretty powerful thing, especially if you're the one receiving prayer. Uh, I mean, it always affects me personally when I'm seeking prayer, and I, I literally feel a brother or a sister's hand on my shoulder or around me thinking, man, I'm a part of the body of Christ. We pray for one another, and and we do so in such a way where there's a demonstration of our physical presence to remind someone that they're not alone. Laying on of hands is powerful in prayer. Also, the Bible teaches of the laying on of hands in healing. And so, you know, the Bible teaches if you are sick, call for the elders, they'll anoint you with oil. There's the laying on of hands to pray. There's that acknowledgement, maybe that point of contact for your faith to be activated before God, trusting him. And it's the laying on of hands for healing. There's also the laying on of hands in ordaining a brother into the ministry. We did that not too long ago. We, we laid hands on Brother Byron before he went back to Ukraine. And we acknowledged as as an elders, as the elders and the pastors of our church, we acknowledge God's gifting in this brother's life. And we laid hands on him and we commended him and ordained him into pastoral ministry as he headed back to oversee the pastorate and the church in the Ukraine. But I don't think that's what he's speaking of here, the laying on of hands, all of the ones we just saw in the book of Acts. I see something even deeper that was important for the Hebrew believers, and that is this. I believe he's referring to the laying on of hands through the sacrificial system of Judaism. Listen to this. Jot it down. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. He says, speaking of someone that's bringing a burnt offering, he says, If his offering is of a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. The idea is if you would bring an offering, you would lay your hands on the animal to convey that that animal sacrifice would cover you and your family. You guys remember, it wasn't too long ago, we studied the entire chapter of Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. And we saw the ministry of the high priest and how he would take his bloody hands and put his bloody hands on the bull and also on the scapegoat that would be a representation that that animal sacrifice and the scapegoat, scapegoat running away would represent the sins of the entire nation of Israel for the year. And it was done by faith. And so this is what I believe he's saying to us. He's saying that remember the foundational truth that you no longer need to lay hands on an animal sacrifice for your salvation. No longer do you lay your hands on an animal, but rather you lay hold of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says, don't go backwards. You're going backwards to something that you've already grown up for. You don't need to lay your hands on an animal anymore. And by the way, I am glad that you guys have gotten this because in all the years we have been a church, nobody has brought a goat to sacrifice here. Praise God for that. Because we're walking, you know, you're walking in with a goat and you're going, dude, what are you doing here? Like, oh, I just came to be a sacrifice. No, no, we don't do that. Because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Anyone by faith. He's the once for all Sacrifice. And so they need to understand, as you and I do, that we no longer lay our hands on animals and sacrifice animals. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. The truth that we need to remember is that we don't do this anymore. Don't go backwards. It's done. The work of God is finished in his son, Jesus Christ. No longer do we lay hands on animals, but we lay hold by faith upon Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice. Foundational truth. Number five, this is a great one, notice the next one. Not only the laying on of hands, but of the resurrection of the dead. The doctrine of the resurrection, what a glorious foundational truth to remember and hold on to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to our faith in him. He not only lived, he wasn't only buried, but three days later, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. He is alive right now, calling you and me into deeper relationship with him. Aren't you glad? This is foundational. Yes, amen. This is foundational because remember, Paul is about to write some really hard things, deeper things he said. And what is the deeper thing specifically? The eternal ministry of Jesus Christ, the high priest in heaven. His ministry did not end at his death. And it did not end at his burial. And it did not end at his resurrection or his ascension into heaven that he is still living and interceding and serving you and i in the heavenly realm that will be explained in further chapters he has an eternal ministry he's an eternal high priest and the very root of that is his resurrection would you turn over in your bibles to first corinthians, corinthians chapter 15. first corinthians chapter 15 really speaks to the church in Corinth, just like we are a church here in Colorado. The church in the city of Corinth were somewhere in the church saying that there was no such thing as the resurrection. Some were going around teaching a false doctrine that there was no resurrection. And notice how it's addressed in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and he is, how is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So he's addressing it. He say, look, we teach then the resurrection, but if the resurrection isn't really true, then our preaching is wrong. Everything we've ever said is wrong. God is wrong is basically the point he's making if that false teaching was true. Verse 16, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And even then, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men the most pitiable that really is the essence of denying the resurrection not only do you do you not have a not only do you call god a liar not only do you call jesus a liar not only do you call pastors uh, untruthful but now your sins aren't forgiven Because the forgiveness of your sins are rooted in the promises of Jesus Christ. And he kept his promise and rose from the dead. And he's just kind of walking you through. Man, if what what they're saying is true, this is a pitiable doctrine. And if that's all the hope that we have is this world, we're in trouble. And even those that died before us in Christ, they don't even exist anymore. But he says in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have died. Indeed, he has risen from the dead. And the very power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in every true believer. That everything you and I face is met with the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Not only that, but it gives us the significance that our sins have been forgiven by the finished work of Jesus. Not only that, but it reminds us that all of our friends and family that have died in Christ will be reunited with them. Why? Because of the resurrection. It's foundational. It's foundational. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is not in the tomb. So much so that Peter would put it this way in First Peter chapter 1 verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter was an eyewitness. He says, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have been begotten to a living hope one that is looking for a soon return, notice, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The resurrection is essential. It's an essential Christian doctrine that we understand of the power of Jesus and he's alive today. You know, it reminds us too in that last verse Uh, in 1 Corinthians, like if there's only hope in this life, man, we have the most pitiable existence. It reminds us of one of the most significant but often overlooked teachings of Jesus Christ found in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus is speaking about worry and fretting and the cares and concerns of this world and clothing and food, he closes up by saying, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness... And all these things will be added unto you. That's the right order for us. To seek God first. To have him as the priority and the preeminent motive of everything in our lives. And and can't you testify, I'm sure you can, to the many times where Jesus was not placed first and what an empty existence that really is. The times where he wasn't preeminent. Where our faith wasn't focused where the things of this world and the the situations of this world and, and the accoutrements of this world captured our attention. And we came to the end when we finally repented and turned back to the Lord. We finally came to the end and said, you know what, this is a pitiable existence. I need to get my eyes and my life back on the Lord. Especially you young people, as you launch out into life, understand this, although it's for young and old, but understand that the key to life is to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Nothing else matters without God. Not, a, not any amount of money, not any amount of education, not where you live, not what house you drive, not what clothes you wear. You don't, you don't drive houses, what car you drive? I mean, I guess you can do those uh, mini houses, what do they call those, those little ones on a trailer? What car you drive? What house you live in? What clothes you wear? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Here's the final one in uh, number six now, the final foundational thing, and that is not just the resurrection of the dead, but of eternal judgment. That's an important sobering truth, eternal judgment. To know that you'll have to answer for your life before a holy and a righteous God And the Bible actually teaches two different judgments. One is found in 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to show it to you. So would you please turn 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the judgment for believers. All Christians will be at this judgment. Pick up with me in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's known as the Bema Seat. Judgment or the Bema seat. Verse 9, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we, speaking of believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. This is where our works and the motive of our works will be judged and tried by fire, purified. And that which was pure will last, and that which was pure, you know, wood, hay, and stubble would be burned away. I have to say, this is probably going to be a very surprising moment for us. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven, how that'll all go down, I'm not quite sure. But even times where in this life, before we even get to the Bema Seat, in this life, God has revealed to me many times over that I've done something good with the wrong motive. (laughs) I've done something good but not really to glorify God or to bring him honor. And and while God has used that good work in order to to for his purposes, my motives were revealed. Well, at the bema seat all of our motives will be laid bare. And that which lasts will end up being rewards, and that which isn't will be burned up in the fire. The bema seat from from the first century referred to this place of judgment in the city square. You know, when you go with us on a Footsteps of Paul trip and we go through the different cities, there's actually still some Bema seats there, and that's where the judges would sit. And the judges of the city would judge matters that were important and that would be brought to them. But also the Bema seat represented the place in the Olympic Games where a person would come and be rewarded for their victory. And so the Bema seat is not just a place of of purifying and burning away those things that were done with impure motives. It's also a place of reward for the Christian. Turn back to Revelation now, chapter 20, because the second judgment that's mentioned in the Bible is known as the great white throne judgment. Great white throne. Believers will not be at the great white throne judgment. It is reserved for unbelievers. Now, they may be somewhere in that vicinity, perhaps, but the great white throne judgment is for unbelievers where they'll be judged by one decision and one decision alone, and that is what did they do with Jesus Christ? How did they respond to the finished work of Jesus Christ in their lives? Notice in verse 11 of chapter 20, it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And then notice, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up their dead. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so eternal judgment is something we all need to come to terms with. The Bible says, according to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, that it is appointed once for a man to die, and after this, the judgment. There are no second chances after death. There are many gracious chances this side of death. But once a man or a woman dies, there is no other chance. You can't change your mind after you die. Now, I have to say, though, in a sense, you will change your mind in the presence of God. But by then it'll be too late. There is no such thing as this doctrine of purgatory where you go somewhere and get a second chance and people can pray you out and pray out the sin in your life. You either receive Jesus Christ and his finished work of salvation for your life now before you die, or after that it's the judgment. Believers stand before Christ in the Bema seat. Unbelievers stand before the great white throne believers go into an eternal presence forever and ever in the presence of God, full of joy and peace and and true happiness. Unbelievers are sent away into the lake of fire, Gehenna, for eternal judgment. It's such a heavy topic, and we've taught on it before, but Jesus would describe it as a place where there's darkness, utter darkness, gnashing of teeth. And this one phrase is just really kind of scary, and that is a place where the worm doesn't die, and that's not God's heart for you. God's heart for you listening to me right now is for not, not for you to experience eternal judgment. It's for you to experience eternal life, that you might live in a way that glorifies and honors God, your creator, that you would live in such a way where your sins are forgiven and you have repented of your sins and you have turned your life toward faith in God, living in the very resurrection power of God, Living in a way where you don't depend on your dead works to save you, or some religious system, but rather a surrendered, obedient life, abiding in Christ. You see, for us that are saved, God's heart for us is to grow up, to become more useful in His hands, not less. God is strong and mighty, working in you by His grace. And he uses a variety of people and a variety of ways and a variety of circumstances and a variety of time periods to help us grow up, to help us mature, to help us toward perfection. Some of you have such deep, searing pain right now. And yet I want you to know that that pain is not lost or wasted in the hands of God. Or you could put it this way, there is purpose in your pain today. And God will use it for his glory. I know there are times where you're just like, you know, I don't understand. I just don't see how. Marie was just telling me this yesterday. As we were standing by the graveside of our son. And she says, you know what? It doesn't get any easier. And I said, I know, honey. And she says, I just don't understand how God's going to use this. And I said, I know, honey but God is revealing his will in our lives. And we know without a doubt that there is purpose in the pains that come in our lives. Because you know everyone suffers. Everyone goes through difficulties. Every one of us come to circumstances where we just don't understand. And it's in those times when we don't understand that we commit our lives to a faithful God who does understand, who does care, who understands through the sacrifice of his own son He would do everything possible to keep us from an eternity apart from him. And all that's waiting is for you to bow the knee in humility and turn away from your sin. God wants to disciple us, church. He is discipling us. He is growing us. Can you please not put discipleship into this box that God only does it one way? You know, some of you, when you think of discipleship and spiritual maturity, you think, well, you know, uh, I just need to take a class. That's how I'll grow up. And as important as classes are, and I do think you should take a few classes and get involved in small groups, that is not the only way that God disciples. Some of you might be thinking, well, I just need a mentor in my life. That's what I need. I need a discipler. Well, you know, it's great to have people in our lives, but remember, with the Bible, the greatest external tool of discipleship is the Bible. You know what the internal tool is? The Holy Spirit. So with the Bible and the indwelling of God in your life, you're being discipled. So it's not that, you know, I'm just not growing up because I don't have a discipler. No, you have the greatest discipler. God is in your life teaching you his word. And please don't underestimate and minimize the power of discipleship through the continual, systematic study of God's Word and the verse-by-verse, book-by-book, chapter-by-chapter teaching of God's Word. Whether you're here in this church or you're listening on the radio and you're, you're learning the Bible, God uses Bible study to develop us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And here's the thing because you're in a church that teaches the bible every single week every single time we're in the bible we're finishing books we're going through word by word verse by verse chapter by chapter the things that become repetitive and routine tend to be devalued in our minds we just get used to them and you're just like wow well, another bible oh we're in hebrews for how long we're going to be and then you won't know how valuable it is until you're in a church that doesn't teach the bible and there are many today, unfortunately. Oh, I don't mean that they don't use the Bible. Praise God that there are still churches using the Bible. But they'll take a verse here and a verse there and, and kind of throw it out there so that it can be the platform by which whatever the pastor or teacher wants to say can say. But what we need is the whole counsel of God. We need to discipline ourselves to listen to the Word of God. We we need to learn, even as we saw last time, to read our Bibles and pray how often? Every day. That the Word of God, even a brother came up on Wednesday and he said, You know what, I've been walking with the Lord for so many years, but your message got me. And I go, Really? What happened? He says, You know, I just haven't been reading my Bible. And so for four days, as of last Wednesday, four days, the brother read the Bible and he's been blessed. And I challenge you, read the Bible. You'll be blessed. Focus on the things you do understand. There's not just one way of discipleship. Because there's so many different people, different mindsets, different levels of of ability and and how our minds work, God uses a lot of different ways to disciple us and to grow us. And ultimately, the goal is not to become like a pastor or a famous teacher. The goal is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus said, and I'll I'll leave you with this. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained, perfectly discipled, will be like his teacher. And we want to follow our teacher, Jesus Christ. So Father, as we head out today, we're grateful and we're thankful for your faithfulness in our lives. And I know we spend a day, uh, you know, spending with family and friends thankful, but God... Let every day be a day of thanksgiving. That we would be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, making our prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. May we leave here with the sense of your guarding faithful purposes in our lives. Nothing is wasted, no feeling in this room today no anxious thought, no worry, no, no uh, even frustration. Lord, I just sense that today there's someone here that's just really frustrated where they are in life. You, you could say that they've been using the phrase, I don't want to be here. And I pray, God, that you would minister to them by your grace that they are where they are by your will and that you are doing a work. You haven't abandoned them. You, you haven't turned your back upon them. Sometimes like the children of Israel, they'll cry out to Moses, why have you brought us here? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? And it was just frustration in the wandering of their lives separate from God. And so perhaps you're calling a son, a daughter, back to yourself today to embrace their location, to embrace their position, to embrace their place that they might fulfill your will in their lives and be going from glory to glory and strength to strength. And so, Lord, pour out your Spirit in this place today that we might leave here with the joy of knowing you love us and you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877 304